0: for your word, because it's how we know about you. It's how we know what you desire for us. It reveals our sin, and it reveals our Savior. And I pray that uh, you'd use this time to teach us from your word. I pray you'd change us as a result of what we learn today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever thought how wonderful it would have been to be one of the original followers of Jesus? After all, they had the creator of the universe, the Lord himself, to personally teach them. They saw the lame healed, the blind given sight, and the dead dead raised, and the multitudes fed. And somehow, I, I think if we could see him, we think if we could see him in person, it would be so much easier to believe and trust. But you know what? We're no different than the disciples. And they struggled to believe after witnessing miracle after miracle. Well, near the end of chapter 6, we learn that Jesus got into the boat with the disciples, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Mark says the disciples hadn't figured things out. They couldn't put two and two together. And it's understandable if we think about it because one minute they were fishermen and tax collectors minding their own business, and the next thing they know they're the disciples of the Son of God abandoning all to follow Jesus. Well, Mark tells us why they couldn't understand. It was because their hearts were hardened. And the Greek word for harden that's used here means to harden by covering with a callus. And there were layers of wrong thinking that had to be peeled away. Their highly religious culture had conditioned them to think that the more religious you were, the more acceptable you were to God. And as Jews, they had also been taught that they had exclusive access to God, and they didn't understand that Israel was not the end of the gospel, but the means by which the gospel goes to the whole earth, and that even included the Gentiles. So erroneous thinking is not limited Only to the original disciples. Every person who comes to faith in Christ has wrong thinking about God, about faith, about sin. But as we grow, the Lord shows us our callous hearts, and he peels away that hardness bit by bit. And he uses his word to open our eyes to see spiritual truth. And that is what we see happening in Mark chapter 7 when Jesus starts to teach his disciples about the deadliness of hypocrisy, which has been covered up by calluses by using an encounter with the scribes and Pharisees. So the disciples had been taught that observing religious rituals or following traditions had made them acceptable to God. And their teachers, the Pharisees, were obsessed with two things, tithing and avoiding defilement. And contamination from the world was always a real threat. Oh. Can you hear me okay? No? Okay okay don't i 'm trying not to move um, okay. It was a real threat, this contamination, because unclean people and things were everywhere, and just impossible to avoid so even if you accidentally touched someone or something that was unclean and that person touched somebody and touched you, that rendered you uh, defiled and so these ceremonial washings became very important and The Pharisees noticed that Jesus' disciples were eating bread without ceremonially washing their hands, which meant in their minds they were defiled. So not only was uh, proper hand washing essential, but Mark tells us that cups and pitchers and pots also had to be washed a certain way. Now, pot washing was so complicated that when Jewish traditions were later written down and codified, there were, get this, 30 chapters detailing proper dishwashing techniques. (laughs) So their underlying accusation is that no true rabbi would allow his followers to be defiled. And, you know, they don't accuse Jesus and his disciples of breaking the law of Moses, but they do accuse them of breaking the tradition of the elders. So in the Old Testament, only the priests were required to wash their hands and feet Before offering sacrifices, but the scribes extended this to requiring everybody to wash their hands before formal prayers and meals. So these oral traditions that Jesus attacks were created by the elders as a way to build a wall of protection around the law. And they created these extra regulations to make sure nobody even got close to doing that. So what happened was, in reality, those rules that they made up actually undermined and obscured the law uh, that they intended to protect. Uh, the Jerusalem Talmud, which would be a collection of these writings, said, "The words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law." It also says that it's a greater tra- crime to transgress the words of the Rabbi of, of, of Rabbi Hillel than the words of Scripture. And one noted rabbi said, whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his his food with washed hands may rest assured that he shall receive eternal life. Well, no wonder the people were confused. They'd been taught to measure their spiritual condition in terms of external conformity to traditional and ceremonial rituals rather than what, what was going on in their heart, a sincere love for God and obedience to his word. So Jesus' response to the Pharisees' question about his disciples' lack of ritual hand-washing, he just simply indicted them for their hypocrisy. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written, "'This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me.'" teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You neglect the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. You're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So Jesus didn't deny breaking their tradition. He ignored it because it was meaningless. It obscured the truth, and he accuses the Pharisees of being no different than the Jews of Isaiah's time. They elevated their traditions above Scripture. Now, th- that gave the impression of devotion, but their heart were, their hearts were light years from God. And their, their worship and teaching was, if you think about it, actually evil because it led men to believe that they could be saved by washing their hands and their pots and their pans and ignoring God's commands. And you know what, ladies, when we live by external legalistic rules rather than by the spiritual sacrifices of a broken and a contrite heart— Jesus says that our worship is hypocritical and meaningless as well. He then drives home his point about their blatant hypocrisy by providing an illustration. God had instructed his people to honor, respect, and treat their parents with care, and not to do so was a crime worthy of death. And inherent in that responsibility was to help meet the needs of their parents if they became unable to provide for themselves. And rabbinic tradition had sidestepped that command by allowing children to declare their assets as Corbin or dedicated to God. So if parents had needs and they asked for assistance, the kids could just say, oh, no, we've pledged that money to God. That's obviously more important. And they, they wouldn't help. And what's really crazy is that pledged money didn't have to be given to the synagogue or temple right away. It could be pledged for later use. And so when the kids wanted to use their money again, they just unpledged it and claimed it back for themselves. So that's the hypocrisy involved. So Jesus ended this confrontation by issuing a blanket condemnation. You are thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition. So the Judaism of the Pharisees was apostasy, it was heresy, it was an unbiblical religion that contradicted God's word, and the true faith of the Old Testament had been lost and obscured by thousands of rules and regulations that the Jewish religious leaders had created and handed down. And it was hypocrisy at its finest because the emphasis was on a form of external self-righteousness designed to appease God that instead deceived them into thinking that they were more righteous than anybody else around them. So in a later encounter with the Pharisees, we'll come to this in Mark 15, um, he describes the situation by saying, but Jesus knowing their hypocrisy. Wow. You know, under the gaze of the Lord, all hypocrisy is exposed. Jesus knows your hypocrisy and he knows mine. He knows your heart and he knows if you love and obey him, if you adore him, if you worship him from the heart, he knows. He also knows if it's pretend and you're putting on a show. Hypocrisy blinds us and hardens our hearts and we're all hypocrites to some degree because we all want people to think we're really better than we are. But you know what? There's good news. The solution for the hypocrisy is the same for any other sin. It's repentance. And the apostle Paul is God's proof that no one is beyond the reach of grace, even proud, self-righteous Pharisees. Well, after the confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus calls the crowd to himself to explain what the source of true defilement is, and it's not from eating meals with unwashed hands. The defilement that offends God is an internal spiritual reality that infects every single person. Listen to me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. And so he left the crowd and entered the house, and the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. You know, the the disciples are struggling to understand this basic truth that righteousness before God does not come from external rituals like washing your hands and even eating kosher food. His teaching was so contrary to what they'd been taught, they found it difficult to accept that the condition of your heart is not determined by what you eat. And Jesus was saying to them, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries deeds of coveting and wickedness. Jesus could not be more clear. It's the heart, the inner thought life of a person that is actually the source of sin. It's not unwashed hands or non-kosher food that defile a person but an unwashed soul. No external ritual can purify a depraved heart. Sinners need to be given a new nature and a new heart, and only the Spirit of God can create that. Paul wrote, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. That's the washing that matters and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how many times you wash your hands, get baptized, join a church, tithe, recite the Lord's Prayer, or volunteer at a soup kitchen. That is not going to cleanse your heart. It's not going to make, give you a new heart. Salvation requires an internal miracle wrought by the Holy Spirit who gives life and cleanses the souls of all who embrace Jesus Christ in faith. Well, Mark moves right along, and his narrative continues as Jesus and the disciples move to the city of Tyre, and Mark relates the story of the Syrophoenician woman. This is my favorite one and he continues to teach them about the nature of true faith as opposed to the proud, superficial arrogance of Israel's religious leaders. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre, and when he entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. Okay, Tyre was a two-day journey northwest from Galilee into present-day southern Lebanon. It was the center of Baal worship. It was the home of Jezebel. And Jesus deliberately travels far into Gentile country because there are lessons the disciples can only learn here. Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) We are not. A visit from a rabbi with 12 followers was clearly an unusual event in the pagan city of Tyre, and Jesus was quickly noticed. After hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately fell at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Okay, so this, she's a woman, she's a Phoenician, she's a Gentile, she's a Canaanite, and her daughter is demon-possessed. She's O for 5. She knows that she's unclean, and she's disqualified to approach any devout Jew, let alone a rabbi. But she doesn't care. She enters this house without an invitation, falls down, and loudly begins begging Jesus to exorcise a demon from her daughter. And in the parallel passage in Matthew 15, we learn what she says. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Oh, this is very interesting. She asks for mercy because she knows she deserves nothing because she's not part of God's covenant people. She calls Jesus Lord. She calls him by his messianic name, son of David. You know what? She understands who Jesus is, and she knows he can help her daughter. And Mark says she kept asking. She is not going to give up even though Jesus hasn't even responded to her at this point. And in Matthew 15, we learn the disciples felt she was a nuisance and went to Jesus and implored him to send her away. Well, finally, here is someone with genuine faith, and they want to get rid of her. They are clueless. (laughs) Their hearts were so hardened against her because of the cultural biases they grew up with. Well, Jesus finally says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, her response on hearing this is to bow down before Jesus, which is an act of worship, and say, Lord, help me. And knowing that Jesus was her only hope, she refused to leave. Oh, that we had that kind of attitude. Well, Jesus' next response is not at all what we would have expected. He said to her, let the children be satisfied first. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And this is just a simple analogy, and the Lord reiterates that his ministry priority is to Israel first. A meal prepared for the children, you don't give it to the dogs. And similarly, He was to preach the news of the kingdom to the children of Israel first. Now, I think we need to note that he was not calling her a dog, but even though that was a pejorative term the Jews used to describe Gentiles, but the word that's used here means puppies or household pets. So the woman got his point. She understood his focus was on feeding the children of Israel, and she was not included, and she, she wasn't even offended and comes back with this astounding reply, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. She agrees with the Lord. I'm a dog. I'm a puppy. I don't deserve to be fed the children's bread. You don't owe me anything, but I would happily take leftover crumbs. You know, she recognized her unworthiness and acknowledged her place as a Gentile. She understood the Jewish right to partake of God's blessings first, and she simply asked for some leftovers. And her attitude was the opposite of the Pharisees, who were filled with self-righteous pride. She was meek, she was poor in spirit, and for her, the crumbs were sufficient. A tiny fragment of Jesus' power could heal her daughter, and that was all she sought. So in Matthew's account, we learn that Jesus said, "'O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as your wish.'" Because of your answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. You know, is there a better compliment that Jesus could have given her than telling her that her faith was great? Her faith stood in stark contrast to the Jewish religious leaders who arrogantly condemned their own Messiah as a blasphemer and an ally of Satan, What a lesson for the disciples. The pagan woman they tried to send away is a monument of great faith, something inconceivable to their hardened hearts. What a rebuke she was to apostate Israel. This woman's story is a magnificent illustration of genuine saving faith. It's humble, it's penitent, it's reverent, and it's persistent. So what can we learn from her? First, the Son of God delights to show mercy to desperate sinners who call on him. Secondly, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And third, the hardness of our hearts can blind us to the very people around us on whom God wishes to bestow His mercy and salvation. Wow. Well, Mark continues his account by telling us that Jesus and the disciples left the region of Tyre. They went through Sidon, the Sea of Galilee. They came to Decapolis. This, as you know, is a Gentile region where there were 10 city-states. It was a center of Greek paganism. There was lots of active idol worship. And just as the Jews brought their sick to Jesus to be healed, so did the Gentiles. And Mark tells us they brought to him one who was deaf and who spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay hands on him. Because he couldn't speak, this man had never learned to speak properly. His family cared enough to bring him to Jesus, hoping he could be healed. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. He put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva, and looking up to heaven, said, Ephatha, which means be opened." And his ears were opened. The impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. No speech therapy for him. So, again, we see the compassion of Jesus, who gives his undivided attention to one desperate man who'd been ignored and ridiculed his whole life. Jesus communicates with, with the man in a way that he can understand. He uses touch, he uses sign language, he uses gestures. And the man is healed. He can hear and speak perfectly. And then the story kind of takes this funny little twist. Jesus gives them orders not to tell anybody. Well, that didn't work too well because the man was so overjoyed that he didn't obey. And, you know, I can't say that I blame him. The more Jesus orders them not to talk to people, the more widely they continue to talk about this miraculous healing. And no doubt the man's reaction was one of exuberant joy. And Jesus' command had to be completely confusing to someone who'd been unable to speak his whole life. Why this command? Because Jesus didn't come just to be a miracle worker. He came as the Redeemer, and the the message was not yet complete. So if the message only highlighted his miraculous healings, that's inadequate. They need to know the full message includes the fact that Christ died for our sins. According to the Scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day. It was an issue of timing. Well, we move along again in Chapter 8. And uh, Jesus continues to teach the disciples that God's message of salvation was to spread from his chosen people to all nations. And once again, there's a large crowd of people. It's mostly Gentiles following Jesus and they're listening to his teaching and three days go by and they are so consumed with listening to Jesus that they refuse to go home even if it means going hungry and they are in such a remote place that there's no possibility of buying or finding food to feed them and the disciples ask the obvious question where are we going to find food here in the middle of nowhere to feed these people now this seems like deja vu all over again I don't think the disciples had forgotten what Jesus had done a few months earlier when he fed an even larger crowd. I think it's an almost sheepish admission that they knew they had no resources for such a vast need. And I don't think they questioned Jesus' power, but they must have had misgivings about his purpose because this crowd was Gentiles. And it was one thing to heal Gentiles and send them on their way, but it was another for Jesus to create a meal so they could all eat together because Jewish people were forbidden to eat with Gentiles by rabbinic traditions and regulations. So I think apart from demonstrating Jesus' compassion for hungry people, one key point that Mark is making is that Gentiles are welcome at God's table. And this is a lesson, if you remember, that Peter struggled with for many, many years. God, in Acts 10, gave him a vision of unclean animals and commanded him to arise, kill, and eat. Peter protests, says he's never eaten anything unclean, God informs him, it's not the case anymore, it's not considered unholy. Peter then understands, he shares the gospel with a Gentile named Cornelius who becomes a believer. Well then if you fast forward another 10 years, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul has to confront Peter face to face about his hypocrisy of no longer eating with Gentile believers because he feared the party of the circumcision. So I I think we can learn, you know, from Peter that it takes years sometimes for God to expose and remove the prejudices that our calloused hearts hide. So don't give up. You know, through this miracle, Jesus is showing them that the gospel is for everyone, even those they had been taught to avoid, distrust, and even hate. The gospel was for people they didn't even want to be saved or believed had the right to be saved. And maybe you can relate to the disciples. Maybe there are people in your life whose lives are disgusting to you or who, whose choices have hurt you badly, and you really don't want them to be saved as some form of a punishment for the pain they've caused you. Oh, ladies, the opportunity for repentance is at hand. It's at hand, and it hurts. Well, Jesus and his disciples then get in a boat, and they go to Dalmanutha, where he's met by the Pharisees who begin to argue with him. And they ask for a sign from heaven. Had Jesus given them signs? Oh, yes, he had, and they attributed them to Satan. He sighs deeply and tells them they will be given no sign, because the Lord would not oblige the wicked demands of hard-hearted unbelievers. And their willful blindness broke his heart. You remember how he later wept over the doom of Jerusalem. He wept. Over the doom of the city, he wept for the doom of his enemies. And he knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not going to believe, no matter how many signs they've seen. And he he leaves and goes away, and they have hardened their hearts to the point that God gives them over to their own sin and blindness. And they love the darkness rather than the light, and they would not come to the light for their deeds were evil. So unlike the Pharisees, the disciples did love the light, and they sought the truth, and they kept following Jesus even though they often did not understand what he was trying to teach them. And so when he leaves the religious leaders, they get in the boat again and head out, and at some point they realize that they had forgotten to take any bread with them. And Jesus warns them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And He's talking. Jesus is talking about their corrupt teaching and how it poisons everything it touches. Well, they totally miss his point and can't get past the fact they have no food. Now, they had seen Jesus miraculously feed thousands of people, but they're worried they don't have enough to eat. And so, deja vu again, he asked them, Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Well, duh, yes. Um, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear. Don't you remember how I fed the multitudes? You know, a hardened or calloused heart leads to spiritual blindness, and it leads to spiritual deafness. You can't even hear God talking, even if he is literally in the boat with you. You can't hear him. They still don't get it. And their focus needed to be on the spiritual lessons Jesus was teaching. He wanted them to focus not on the earthly provision of bread, but on the heavenly presence of God caring for his people. <clears throat> so the answer to the present struggles that you're in is to remember that God's faithfulness, God remember God's faithfulness and provision in the past. Jesus reminded them that there were leftovers from these feedings. There were baskets full of leftovers, and God always provides more than enough. He always does. Well, finally, they come to Bethsaida, which is the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. And on learning that Jesus had arrived, a blind man was brought by his family and friends. And you probably know in that culture, anybody who was blind was considered to have been cursed by God. But Jesus took the blind man out of the village and privately healed him. Mark tells us it was a two-step process, but we don't really have any additional information on why Jesus healed this man in this particular way. But it is a beautiful illustration of temporary spiritual blindness. And John MacArthur said, Spiritually speaking, the disciples had once been like that blind man. Having been raised in traditional Judaism, they'd been taught to follow the guidance of blind Pharisees and scribes, and their understanding of spiritual truth had been hopelessly blurred by centuries of rabbinic tradition and religious hypocrisy. And all that changed when they met the Savior. He removed the veil of darkness, and gave them eyes of faith, and they began to see, just as he does for every sinner whom he saves. So to kind of bring this together, our spiritual birth takes place at the time we believe, and God gives life to our dead hearts, and he forgives our sins. We all know that. His word comes alive to us, and we begin to grow. And then we enter the CRP, the Callous Removal Program. <laughs> And God begins to expose the calluses in our hearts, which serve to hide or protect the things that we trust in to comfort us. Calluses protect old wounds where bitterness and resentment grow, and the hardness of my heart also protects my idols, the things that I look to instead of God. We all have hard spots we don't see, and the only way to remove calluses, is, especially when they're on your feet, is to soak them and then grind them off. And we need to bathe ourselves in the word of God to begin the softening process. God then uses, the tri- uses trials and irritating people <laughs> as spiritual sandpaper to expose our idols and our lack of faith. And he reveals to us how little <clears throat> we truly trust him and how little we grasp his sovereignty. But as this happens, bit by bit, our hearts soften and our thinking changes and we become more like Jesus. So I found this neat story that I wanted to share. C.S. Lewis describes this experience in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And there's a boy named Eustace who is selfish and mean and nobody can get along with him. But he magically finds himself on this boat. And when it pulls into an island, Eustace wanders off and finds a cave filled with diamonds and rubies and gold, which it turns out were the horde of a now-deceased dragon. Well, Eustace falls asleep on this pile of treasure, gloating over his newfound wealth, and because he falls asleep with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, when he wakes up, he's become a dragon, big, terrible, and ugly. And after getting over his initial shock, Eustace ultimately realizes there's no way out of his condition. He can't go home on the boat, and he's going to be left on this island and be a dragon for the rest of his life. Well, one day... the the great lion Aslan shows up. And you know who who he represents? He represents Jesus. And he leads him to a clear pool of water and tells him to undress and jump in. And Eustace realizes that undress means take off the dragon's skin. So he begins to gnaw and claw the scales off and they fall off. And he realizes he can shed his skin much like you peel a banana. And he begins to gnaw, and claw, he gets the first layer off, and all of a sudden he finds out that underneath he's got another dragon skin. <laughs> and he tries it a second time and a third time. to no avail. and as soon as one skin is gone, another one appears. And then the lion says, "You will have to let me undress you." Well Eustace says, "I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was desperate. The very first tear he made was so deep, that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done, and there it was, lying on the grass. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment, and as he threw me into the water, and as soon as I started swimming, I found all the pain had gone, and I turned into a boy again. Well, maybe you're like Eustace. And you know that there's a hard, ugly callus protecting your heart, and you haven't been able to remove it. There's resentment, there's unforgiveness and bitterness lurking just beneath the surface, but you've rationalized it and ignored it and even managed to hide it pretty well. But now it owns you, and you've given up all hope for change. The Lord is not fazed by your calluses. He calls you to repent, to forgive those who have hurt you, and to lay your heart open to him. His word is living and active. It is like the claws of Aslan, and it will cut you to the core, but it will heal you. On the other hand, you may be comfortable in your own skin, just like the disciples were. This is a dangerous place to be because they didn't even realize how hard their hearts really were. Even when Jesus kept pointing it out to them, you know, it is painful and shocking to learn how calloused and hard our hearts really are. And God's callous removal program hurts because it involves trial after trial, which points out our sin, our self-reliance, our hypocrisy and our lack of faith that we don't even know exist in our hearts. But you know what, ladies, God's call is the same. Whether you see the hardness in your heart or he exposes it to you or you've hidden it, the call is always the same. It's to repent and to forgive. And when we repent, he binds up the wounds of our broken hearts and a broken and a contrite heart he does not despise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and the conviction you brought to me. There's nothing like doing a lesson on hypocrisy to learn what a total hypocrite you really are. But I thank you that you don't leave us as we are, and you're always challenging us. You're always growing us. You're always changing us. And I pray by your mercy would have the the strength and the grace to face our calluses and face the hypocrisy in our own lives. And, Lord, open open our hearts to you, that, that you would cut us to the core and change us. In Jesus' name, amen.